Jesus is not a concept. Jesus is alive. It's astounding, like nothing before or since, but does it mean anything? Or is it just another one of those weird things that happen in the world? Like the story of Salvador Avenga. 2014, he went out in a boat from South America and he then survived 438 days drifting in the Pacific Ocean before he washed up on the Marshall Islands. 438 days adrift in the Pacific. Well, the story of Jean Hilliard in 1980, who recovered after being frozen solid in minus 30 degrees uh, minus 30 degrees C for six hours. I was going to show you a picture of her, but it is too horrific because she's frozen solid. But she survived. Is the fact that Jesus walked out of the tomb just another incredible survival story? The New Testament answer is no way. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is not just another survival story. In scale and substance, it blows those other survival stories out of the park. Because Jesus wasn't just resuscitated. He was resurrected, transformed physically with a new immortal body, as we saw this morning. But even more, the New Testament says that Jesus' resurrection tells us something. It tells us something about Jesus. It tells us something also about God. And it tells us something about what God is doing in the world. And that's what we're going to explore tonight. So let's start with what Jesus' resurrection meant for Jesus. We don't have to dream up what Jesus' resurrection might have meant for Jesus, We can start with Jesus' own explanation. Have a look there on page 17 of your booklet at Luke 24, verses 44 to 47. It's there on your page. Jesus is meeting with the disciples after his resurrection, and this is what he says. Jesus said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the Scriptures, and he told them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and will rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. So notice Jesus says there in verse 46, my resurrection should be no surprise since the Old Testament said that the Messiah, the Christ, would be killed and then resurrected. Resurrection from the dead was to be expected for the Messiah. So according to Jesus, his resurrection points to his identity as that Messiah, the Christ. And Jesus' explanation of the significance of his resurrection becomes foundational for the apostles as they begin the task of spreading this message about Jesus. And we're going to see that by focusing in on Acts chapter 2, which we just had recited for us a moment ago. So Acts chapter 2 records the first public speech given by the apostles after Jesus' resurrection, in this case by Peter. He summarizes his message at the conclusion of his speech in verse 36, which I've printed there on your page. He says to the crowd, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, made him Lord and Christ. What we're going to do is we're going to now go back through the rest of the speech to see what Peter means by this summary statement. So it would help if you've got your Bible there, if you can open it up to Acts chapter 2 so that we can look at it together. So if you can open up to Acts 2, we're going to jump into Peter's speech at verse 22. I've broken the speech up into several sort of sections. Acts chapter 2, starting verse 22 to 24, and I've given it the little subtitle there, God 1, death 0. Peter tells them in verse 22 that God has already made it clear to them that Jesus was someone special. He did that by all the miracles that Jesus had done. 
Nevertheless, they'd killed him, though even that, he says, was according to God's plan and purpose. But despite their execution of Jesus, Peter says in verse 24, God raised him up, freeing him from death. Now, literally, what he says is, God raised him up, having loosed the birth pangs of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And I'm sort of putting my hands in front of my belly at the moment, because that's the image. The image is actually of death as a pregnant woman, as though death was selfishly trying to stop her child from being born, even in the middle of the contractions. But he says, it was impossible for death to keep its hold on Jesus. God delivered him, raised him up, rescued him from death's selfish grip, and brought him into eternal resurrection life. Why was it impossible for death to keep its grip on Jesus? Death seems to keep its grip on everyone else. Why did God rescue this Jesus from death's grip? Well, the answer is because of who Jesus was. As Peter then goes on to explain in verses 25 to 33, I've given it the heading Christ. Peter points to one of King David's Psalms from the Old Testament, Psalm 16 where David writes in the first person. Now, the psalm is very interesting, Psalm 16. David writes in the first person about not being abandoned to the grave or his body seeing decay, but rather that he's going to enjoy life and joy in God's presence. Now, you'd read the psalm and you think David's talking about himself, but as Peter points out in his speech in verse 29, he says... But David is very much dead. His burial place was well known to all the Jews living in Jerusalem. So Peter's conclusion in verses 30 and 31 is, David, as a prophet, was not speaking about himself. David was speaking about his descendant, the promised Christ or Messiah. And this psalm is therefore prophesying the resurrection of the Christ. Well, so far, so good. But then here's the key observation. Peter then says, but Jesus has been raised. God's raised Jesus from the dead, just like David had promised would happen to the Christ. So join the dots, conclusion, Jesus must be that promised Christ. That's why God raised him. That's why death couldn't keep its hold on him, because he was the Christ and God was never going to let his Christ be abandoned to the grave or see decay. He was always going to grant life to his Christ. So you see, Peter's just making the same point that Jesus made back in Luke 24. Peter's really just saying the same thing that Jesus taught him, that the resurrection points to Jesus' identity as the Christ, the one who stands at the very center of God's plans for all of creation. But who was this Christ? What was the Christ meant to do? Now, I have to sort of press pause here on Acts chapter 2, and we have to delve back into the Old Testament to answer that question of who really, what was the Christ meant to do? Now, in summary, I've got a bit of a blank there. You can fill it in, right? So here's my little potted summary of what the Christ was meant to do. You can fill in the blanks. The Christ was the God-appointed king, the God-appointed king, Christ was the God-appointed king who would establish God's everlasting kingdom, who would establish God's everlasting kingdom by saving and judging, by saving and judging. And who would share God's throne. And who would share God's throne. The Christ was the God-appointed king who would establish God's everlasting kingdom by saving and judging and who would share God's throne. 
Now, I've chosen three passages there on your page that illustrate some of these characteristics of the promised Christ. We're going to turn briefly to each one in your Bible. So, get your Bible out. Here we go. First of all, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 11 to 16. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 11 to 16. God makes a promise here to King David about his promised Christ. Let's have a look. Halfway through verse 11. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When he says house there, he means a dynasty, you know, like the house of Windsor, right? It's a a dynasty. It's not a castle or something, right? He's going to establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. Right? So this is going to be a God-appointed king, a God-appointed king. He's the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, he shall be my son. When he does wrong... I will punish him with a rod wielded by men with floggings inflicted by human hands. So what the king's meant to do is he's meant to rule for God. Otherwise, he'll actually get in trouble. He's meant to rule for God. He'll be establishing not his own kingdom. He's going to be establishing God's kingdom. But my love, he says, will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So this kingdom will be everlasting. All right, that's the first passage. Turn with me then to Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 7. Here God um, reveals his plan to one day send a special servant, the servant of the Lord. Isaiah 42, verse 1. The Lord says, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. Right? Notice, he will come to fulfill God's plans by doing what? judging, establishing justice. Verse 2, he will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, right? He's going to be compassionate, merciful. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says, the creator of the heavens who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles to open eyes that are blind to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. So not only will this servant judge, he will also fulfill God's plans by saving. He will open blind eyes, free the captives, release those in darkness. Judging and saving. That's how he establishes God's kingdom. Finally, let's turn to Daniel 7. Daniel 7. Verses 13 and 14. Uh, This time it's a vision that God gives Daniel, revealing his plans for the future, and it focuses on a human being, one called a son of man. But this human being is going to be honoured like no other human being. So Daniel records Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. 
He says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days. That's Daniel's title for God. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So this son of man, this human being, will be worshipped like God himself. He will be given the sort of glory and power that only God himself has. And his rule will be everlasting, unending. This son of man figure is going to share God's throne. So these three prophecies of the Christ, the servant of the Lord, and the Son of Man, three prophecies all come together in the person of Jesus. He is the Christ. He is the servant of the Lord. He is the Son of Man. They all come together in Him. And in Peter's speech in Acts 2, it's the resurrection that identifies Jesus as that promised Christ, servant, son of man. And if you trace it through, the apostles then go on in the rest of the book of Acts to announce that Jesus was going to do exactly what the Christ was meant to do. He was going to establish God's kingdom by judging and saving. And if you read through the book of Acts in Acts chapter 4, when Peter has healed a cripple in Jesus' name, he then says, it's by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you. Salvation is found in no one else. For there's no other name given under heaven by which man may be saved. You see how he's, he's linked resurrection with salvation. That's what the Christ does. Or in Acts chapter 10, Peter announces Jesus' resurrection, identifies him as the Christ, but then adds that Jesus himself gave them the command to preach to all the people and to testify that he is the one whom God has appointed as judge of the living and the dead. So Jesus' resurrection identifies him as the promised Christ who will judge and will save. So that's thinking a little bit about what it means for Jesus to be Christ. We then go back to Peter's summary in Acts chapter 2. Remember he said, God has made this Jesus both Lord and Christ. We've thought about Christ. What does Peter mean by Lord? Well, let's turn back in our Bibles to Acts 2. Back to Acts 2. If you look at verse 33 you can see it's not just that God has raised Jesus to life again, but he's now been exalted to God's right hand. Now, the right hand of God is a position of honor, power, rule. We saw in Daniel 7, it's this exalted position of sharing God's throne. So much so that the human being exalted in this way in Daniel 7 is then rightly worshipped. Now, that's a bit tricky. Remember, these first Christians came from a Jewish background, and Daniel 7 is part of the Jewish Scriptures. And if there's one thing that's clear in the Jewish Old Testament, it's that there's only one God. The Jews were strict monotheists. There is only one true God, and only He should be worshipped. And yet, in the Gospel accounts, the risen and exalted Jesus is worshipped. I've got some of the key moments there for you on page 18. Notice this. In Matthew chapter 28, when the disciples saw Jesus, they worshipped him. And Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Or in Luke 24, while Jesus was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him. Or in John chapter 20, then Jesus said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. 
Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. This is what we mean when the New Testament calls Jesus Lord. Not just saying um, master or boss or ruler. No, it's a substitute for God's own name, Yahweh, the Lord. Jesus is included. When we say Jesus is Lord, we're including Jesus into the very identity of God. He's sharing God's throne, ruling as God, the Lord, the resurrected Jesus. Now, I need to be a bit careful here. There's a common misunderstanding amongst Christians at this point. The resurrection does not prove directly that Jesus is God. Right? It's not like the diagram halfway down page 18. They've got a little picture there. There she is thinking, Jesus was raised from the dead, therefore Jesus must be God. That just won't fly. That doesn't actually historically quite make sense. Uh, Tom Wright there in a quote explains sort of why. He said, since no second temple Jews, that is the Jews who are alive at the time of the New Testament, no second temple Jews known to us were expecting the one God to appear in human form, let alone to suffer physical death, nobody would have thought of resurrection as demonstrating someone's divinity. Equally, such second temple Jews as we're expecting resurrection, we're expecting it to happen to everyone, certainly to all the righteous amongst God's people and perhaps to all the wicked as well. When the New Testament predicts the resurrection of all who belong to Jesus, there's no suggestion that they will thereby become or be shown to be divine. Clearly, therefore, resurrection by itself could not be taken to prove the divinity of Jesus. If it did, it would prove too much. The oversimple apologetic strategy one sometimes encounters, he was raised from the dead, therefore he is the second person of the Trinity, makes no sense from either end within the historical world of the first century. I mean, resurrection can't prove that Jesus was God because if you're going to be resurrected, you're not going to be God, right? Resurrection doesn't prove divinity. What then is the link between Jesus' resurrection and being worshipped as God? The logic of the New Testament is more like the diagram at the top of page 19. There's a chain of biblical thinking that goes something like this. Jesus was raised from the dead, so Jesus must be the Messiah. Think of, say, Psalm 16. So therefore, Jesus shares God's throne... Think Daniel 7 or Psalm 110. So therefore, Jesus must be included in the identity of God and it's right to worship him. That's why the first disciples, confronted with the risen Jesus, ascending to God's right hand like the Old Testament promised that the Christ would, that's why they worshipped him. He was the Christ, the Son of Man, and therefore he's the Lord, worthy of our worship. Which brings us then back to the end of Peter's speech in Acts 2 and his summary statement there in verse 36. In light of the testimony of the Old Testament scriptures about the resurrection of the Christ who would share God's throne and the fact the apostles are now eyewitnesses to the fact that Jesus has been raised, Peter can tell the assembled crowd, be assured of this, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, Lord and Christ. Resurrection identifies Jesus as Lord and Christ. So this afternoon, Jesus is not a concept. Jesus is alive. Tonight, Jesus lives and he is Lord. He lives and he is Lord. If Jesus has indeed been raised from the dead, then what really matters is not just that he's alive. I mean, that's astounding and interesting. 
But what we've seen tonight is that Jesus' resurrection points to Jesus' identity. He lives and he is Lord. Which means, like the first disciples, it's right that we worship him. Worship is a much misunderstood concept. Uh, Some people hear the word worship. I wonder what you think of when you hear the word worship. Some people think religious ritual, you know, spinning prayer wheels, offering incense. Many Christians would associate worship with singing, singing to God, preferably with lots of emotion. The more emotion, the better the worship. But properly understood, worship in the Bible is bigger and more fundamental. Explain what I mean. Fundamentally, worship is about service. It actually means serving another. Uh, Back in the old days, if you got married, the Christian marriage service had the man promise to worship his bride, his wife. Which was not about actually treating her, oh, you are now God. It was just, it was an old-fashioned way of talking about serving. Right? To worship fund, at a fundamental sort of linguistic level just means to serve another. And according to the Bible, every single human being lives life serving something or serving someone or some collection of things. It's inevitable. It's always the case that you're serving something or some things. So, let's do a bit of a thought experiment. Imagine you finish uni. Yes, we'll have it one day. And you get the job in the city. A large open plan office. But your boss, as is the case, doesn't sit in the open plan office with you. The boss sits where? In the nice corner office. That's where the boss sits and that's where she calls the shots from. Well, in your life, you have put someone or something in that corner office. If you think of all of your life in that sort of, that picture, you've chosen to put someone or something in that corner office. Maybe you've put a number of things in that corner office. You've chosen to let someone, something, call the shots in your life to be your master. And every single one of us is busy serving the master that we've put in the corner office of our life. Sometimes we do it consciously. Sometimes we do it without realizing it. So who or what have you put in your corner office? Maybe you've put there worldly success. Maybe in terms of marks, you know, at uni, or maybe in terms of a career or in terms of sort of money, whatever the the barometer of worldly success is. And that's what you've put there in your corner office. Why did you do that? Well, you were probably driven by some sort of fearful insecurity. And so you're, you're grasping onto some sort of measure of worldly success to make you feel okay. So you, you put that there in the corner office and then you, you get busy serving that boss. Or maybe the boss you put in the corner office is pleasure. It's, it's living a comfortable life. Maybe it's experiences. Maybe it's sex. Maybe it's alcohol. You've put something in that corner office that you're busy serving. Why'd you put those things? Why'd you put pleasure there? Well, maybe it's your fear of missing out. Your fear of sort of not maximizing all possible human experiences in your own life. Maybe it's loneliness, a fear of loneliness that's driven you to put those things there in the corner office. Or maybe you've put approval there. That's the boss you've chosen to serve. Approval of your parents. Winning approval of your friends. 
or just other people that, for whatever reason, you look up to? Why why did you put those there in the corner office? Maybe just because you're afraid of conflict, so you just want to keep them happy. Or maybe you're worried about disappointing them for some reason. We're all busy serving whoever we've installed there in our corner office out of whatever fear that caused us to put them there. That's worship. And so you can see, worship is far bigger than religious ritual. It encompasses every aspect of life. How you use your time, how you use your money, how you use your energy, the decisions you make, what you decide to do and what you decide to not do, what you say, what you think about, how you treat people, how you treat God's creation, what you, what you choose to watch, where you choose to live. It's all part of worship. It's all lived from the corner office. Someone is calling the shots on all those decisions. Some master that you have installed there in that corner office of your life. Who have you put there? Is it Jesus? In Luke chapter 4, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6, which says, Worship the Lord your God and serve only Him. Worship the Lord your God and serve only Him. Only the one true living God has the right to the corner office in your life. And the first disciples, when Jesus was resurrected, they realized that Jesus was the Lord, that God had put Jesus there in their corner office. So they worshipped Him. Well, have you let Jesus into that corner office? Or have you tried to barricade it shut to keep Him out when it comes to sort of certain areas of your life? You can have this bit and this bit, call the shots there, Jesus, but, but not here and here. Is He some sort, somehow sort of competing with all sorts of other masters that you're busy trying to serve? Worship the Lord your God. Serve Him only. Jesus lives, and He is Lord. Are you letting Him call the shots in all those areas of your life? In the way you treat your family, in your attitude to study and work, in your character, your sex life, your aspirations about career and wealth and marriage and family and where you're going to live, Worshipping Jesus as Lord means submitting every aspect of our life to Him. Everything. Jesus is alive and He is Lord. In the interest of time, I'm going to skip over section 2. You'll get used to this, it happens a lot. I'll tell you the main point I was going to make just as we fly through. Um, the main point I wanted to make was that because Jesus is God the eternal Son in a resurrected immortal human body, that means that God has forever revealed Himself to us in Jesus. So I guess the point there is if you want to know what God is like, from now to the end of eternity... You only need to look at Jesus. Jesus will forever be God's own self-revelation as a human being. Remember what Jesus said in John 14? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. There's no more to see. You've seen Jesus. All right, I'm going to move straight on to section 3 at the bottom of page 20. So far, we've seen that Jesus' resurrection identifies Him as Christ and Lord, the one who is at the center of God's plans to establish His kingdom, to save and to judge, to share His throne. 
But Jesus' resurrection was not just a random mark identifying him as the Christ. Resurrection was tied up with the very thing that Jesus was trying to achieve. His resurrection, like his death, was actually central to his saving and judging and establishing God's kingdom. The resurrection is not just his, oh, look, by the way, he's the Christ. No, it's actually wrapped up as part of the very thing he's trying to achieve. That's what we're going to sort of have a look at now. Now, to get this, we have to take a big step back. We have to see the bigger plans and purposes of God revealed in the Bible because that will help us grasp the true significance of what Jesus' resurrection means for the world. So we're going to start with the reign or the the rule of death. Death is a reality that we can't ignore. You might have heard me repeat the saying of George Bernard Shaw in EU public meetings earlier this year. He said, the statistics on death are very impressive. One out of one people die. And you stop and think about that, though, for a moment. That is very sobering, isn't it? That means one day I will face my own death. And so will you. And so will the person sitting next to you tonight. And so will the person in front of you and the person behind you every single one of us, that day will come, we will have to face our own death. I've described death previously as a a tsunami, a tsunami that you cannot outswim. Eventually, it takes every single one of us. According to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, One person dies in Australia every three minutes and 19 seconds. Why would you put that on your website? Because they're statisticians and they have no heart. (laughs) Or Or maybe because there is a dose of reality that no one wants to face. person dies in Australia every three minutes and 19 seconds, that's 435 people who will die today. 435 people who will die today and another 435 who will die tomorrow. And then another 435 on Wednesday. And again on Thursday. And again Every unending day. It will not stop. The tsunami just keeps coming. And it will take us all. Death's reign, death's rule is thorough. And it's also tragic. Death is not fun. Death is not nice. Death is not affirming. Death is sad. It's the end of a relationship. Sometimes I know under the mercy of God, death might come as a release from suffering. But even then, It's the end of the relationship. It's the end of the possibility of love. Which is why death has always been associated with grief. Death is thorough, but it's also tragic. And some of you, I know, know that too well. But the Bible is clear. Human death was not God's good intention for us. Genesis chapter 2 in the account of Adam and Eve's rejection of God in the Garden of Eden 
makes it clear death came as God's penalty, his just penalty for our rejection of him, for human sin. Our refusal to treat God as God, our refusal to worship him, our refusal of his word and his ways. Ever since Adam and Eve, human beings have always decided that God does not know best. We reject his commands, even though he gives them for our good. We turn our backs on his wisdom, because in our pride and self-delusion, we really do think we know better than him. And when you reject God's word, and you reject his ways, you're really saying, I'm not going to let you be God in my life. That's sin. But from the very beginning, God made it clear what would happen if we rebelled against him like that. God tells us in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. What sin gets when it rocks up at the end of the day asking for its wages, sin gets precisely what it actually deserves. That's death. That's why every single one of us dies. Because every single one of us sins. Again from Romans, this time Romans 5.12. Paul says, sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all because all sinned. So you see, and this is the point, our relationship with God and sin and death are all wrapped up together. But God's desire has never been that any of us would end up in death. You can see what he says there in Ezekiel 18, verse 32, on the top of page 21. He says, I take no pleasure in the death of anyone declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent and live. God didn't create us for death. God created us for life. And throughout the Bible, He constantly reveals Himself to be the one who can give life to the dead. So, strap yourself in. Uh, Here is the super lightning fast overview of resurrection in the Bible. Okay, you ready? Write something down each time, each sort of point. Just write something down, even if Rowan just said something. I don't care what it is. Just write something down to sort of focus. I'm just going to try it. This is the big overview, really fast. Ready? The God who gives life. Right. Do you know the story about Abraham and Sarah? You might know the account of them in Genesis 17 and 18. God had promised them a son. But Abraham was nearly 100 and Sarah was nearly 90. And as the writer to Hebrews put it, even though Abraham's body was as good as dead and Sarah's womb was dead, that is, it was barren, yet God miraculously brought forth a son. God is the one who can bring life from the dead. Or take the Old Testament nation of Israel. Because of their persistent sin against God, the nation of Israel ended up in exile. As a nation, they were metaphorically and spiritually dead. But then God promised he would revive them, resurrect them as it were. He was going to bring new life to their dead bones. And God gives this promise through a vision to the prophet Ezekiel. And you can go away and read in Ezekiel 37. It's a full-on sort of horror movie type read, except it's not a horror movie because it's a promise of great life, but it's, it's full on sort of, don't, you know, probably a PG rating, realistically, I guess, these days. Because God gives Ezekiel the vision of wh- how he's going to bring life to the nation of Israel, and he gives Ezekiel a vision of a valley full of dry bones. You know when you go out here in Maroon, you look down into the valley, you see, or up to the prayer town, you see the big valley, a valley full of dry bones. And then he tells Ezekiel to prophesy to the bones. I mean, Ezekiel was, I mean, Ezekiel did all sorts of crazy stuff, right? Because the Lord told him to do it. But he he preaches, prophesies to the to the bones, and they start 
rattling, he says. And they come together into skeletons. I mean, it's freaky stuff. And then the Lord puts flesh on the skeletons and tendons and, sin- and, and sinews and skin. And it's a valley full of dead bodies. And then the Lord breathes into them and they live. His spirit brings them to life. It's a metaphor for what God is going to do for the nation. He's going to, they've been in exile. They're spiritually dead because of their sin, their rejection of God. God is going to bring them to life and return them to their land and put His Spirit in them. But there are other moments too where it starts to become clear that God is going to do something about the physical death problem that we all face because of our sin. For example, in Isaiah 25, which we heard read out for us this morning, and it is one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 25, verses 7 and 8, God promises to one day destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. A shroud is that sheet in which you wrap a dead body. And here we're told death is the shroud, the sheet that is across all nations. But one day God is going to swallow up death forever. He's going to take away that shroud. That shroud lies over us here tonight, doesn't it? The shroud of death. But God promised here in Isaiah, some 700 years before Jesus, that one day he would swallow up death forever. Even more specifically, there's a picture in Daniel chapter 12 that death will not be the end. Daniel is told in a vision, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. So beyond death, one day there will be a resurrection of some sorts, a resurrection to life and a resurrection to shame and condemnation. So given all of these passages in the Old Testament, it's not surprising that the Jewish hope, the Jewish expectation, was that one day there would be some sort of general resurrection from the dead because of all these passages. And you can find references to that Jewish hope in several places in the New Testament. For example, Martha in John 11 says of her dead brother Lazarus, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. There's the standard Jewish expectation. Eventually, God would raise all his faithful people to life. Similarly, the Apostle Paul, when he was on trial for proclaiming that Jesus had been raised from the dead, he says to those listening, look, I... Why are you attacking me? This is just the standard Jewish expectation that there would be a resurrection of the righteous and of the wicked. You can read his defense there in Acts 24 and 26. So what are we seeing to this point? Death has come to all because all have sinned, but God is the one who promises to one day bring life to those who are dead. When will that be? When will God fulfill his promise to bring the dead back to life? which brings us to Jesus. What we have in Jesus' death and resurrection is the overturning of sin and death. And this is the critical point. Look carefully at what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 6.10, there on your page. The death Christ died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Notice the two parts of what is said there. The first is about Jesus' death. The death Christ died, he died to sin once for all. What was the wages of sin? The wages of sin is death. Jesus paid out sin's wages. 
in his death. The punishment for all human sin was poured out on him in his death on the cross, where he stepped in as our representative and substitute. Paul says there, he died once for all of us. He paid the death payment for our sin. But then look at the second half of the verse. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Paul's talking about his resurrection life. Jesus' resurrection life is a life free of sin and free from death. It's a resurrection life in fellowship with God. And importantly, it's a resurrection life that's possible because the death penalty had been paid for sin. And that new resurrection life that Jesus enjoys is a life in which we too can share because Jesus paid the death penalty for our sin too. So I want you to try to get this. This is the full picture of salvation. It's not just that Jesus saved us from sin and death. It's that he's also opened up a new life in right standing and fellowship with God, which we're saved into. Salvation always has these two sides. You're saved from one thing and saved into another. You're saved from that dreadful 11.30 p.m. hunger that grips you at Maru every night. You're saved from that dreadful hunger and saved into the joy and satisfaction of a Macca's run. You're saved from one thing and into another thing. Salvation always works like that. You're saved from the sinking boat into the security of the rescue vessel. You're saved from poverty into the blessing of being able to provide for your family. That's the nature of salvation. There's two sides, saved from and saved into. It's the same with Jesus' death and resurrection. Unless he died, there was no payment for sin. Unless he was raised, we had no life to be saved into. We share in his death, so that we might share in his risen life. Jesus' death and resurrection are two sides of the one salvation. Each of them is ineffective without the other. Now, this explains some verses in the Bible that we often get confused over. I, I skipped over two of them, but I put them there on page... If you go back to the bottom of page 20, you can see them there. Page 20, down the bottom... Romans chapter 4, verse 25. Jesus our Lord was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. You can see there, that's the two sides of salvation. Jesus died paying the penalty for our sins so that we can now share in his living and justified state before God. Or in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Well, why am I still in my sins if Jesus wasn't raised? He died, doesn't that sort of fix the sin problem? Why do I need him to be raised? Well, if Jesus was not raised, there was nothing for you to be saved into. You would still be left there, stuck in your sins. We need the death and the resurrection of Jesus to affect our salvation. Each is ineffective without the other. But Jesus' bodily resurrection is not the end of what God has planned. We're still continuing our... Okay, it's not quite so lightning fast, but we're still continuing our overview of resurrection. We're nearly at the end. Jesus' resurrection is just the first fruits. The bottom of page 21, have a look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20.
But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Uh, Fallen asleep is just a common Bible euphemism for those who have died. And the first fruits is an idea that comes from harvesting. It's the first crops of the season. The significance of uh, the first fruits is that when the first fruits arrive, you know that the rest of the harvest is now on its way. So here, Jesus has been raised from the dead, but he's just the first fruits. There's a whole harvest of resurrections from the dead still to come. But if he's been raised, then you can be sure that the rest of that harvest is coming. Paul then continues, verse 21. For since death came through a man, talking there about Adam in the Garden of Eden, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, that is when Jesus comes back, then those who belong to him. Then the end will come when Jesus hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it's clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who has put everything under him so that God may be all in all. Notice in that passage, God's overturning of death happens in two stages. There's the resurrection of Jesus, the first fruits, and then everyone else who belongs to Jesus when Jesus comes. That's the rest of the harvest. That will be the final destruction of death when Jesus returns and the dead in Christ are raised. There is really only one resurrection of the dead. There's only one total harvest. It's just that it happened first to Jesus. And the rest of us, his people, are eagerly waiting for it. But the point of describing Jesus as the firstfruits is that there's no doubt that that next stage will come. If we have faith in Jesus, we know that we'll be raised because the first fruits of the harvest has already come in. Jesus has already been raised. There's no doubt about the rest of the harvest coming. Now, just stop for a moment and think that. Do you see how good that is? Death is our enemy. Death's reign is thorough and tragic. But God has wonderfully ensured through Jesus that death will not have the last word. Despite our sin, death itself will be destroyed. It will be swallowed up forever And it's already happened for one person, for Jesus, the firstfruits. There's no question about the rest of the harvest coming. God has indeed wonderfully worked to put things right. Well, what response should we make to all of this? Well, if you head back to Acts chapter 2, we can see the response of the crowd to Peter's speech Acts chapter 2 verse 37 tells us that when they hear Peter's explanation that God has made Jesus Christ and Lord, they're cut to the heart. That is, they're convinced and horrified that they've just indeed killed the Christ. And in answer to their question, what then shall we do? Peter says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Remember we were talking about the two sides of salvation? Sin and death on one side, resurrection and life from the Spirit on the other. How do you describe moving from one side to the other? Well, one of the ways the New Testament describes it is having your sins forgiven. Because when your sins are forgiven, you can move into the newness of life outside of the punishment of death. And when you read through the New Testament, there's a persistent connection between Jesus' resurrection and the announcement of the forgiveness of sins. It goes back to Jesus himself in Luke 24. 
This is what is written, he said to his disciples after his resurrection. The Christ will suffer and will rise from the dead on the third day and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. If Jesus has died and risen again, then now is the time that you can have your sins forgiven and you can move from death to life. That's exactly what the the apostles get busy and do for the rest of the book of Acts and what Christians have been doing for 2,000 years, proclaiming in Jesus the forgiveness of your sins and the possibility now of resurrection to life. Jesus lives and he is Lord. Will you worship him? God has done what we thought was impossible. He has overturned sin and death. He's dealt a death blow to death through the death and resurrection of Jesus. But Jesus' resurrection was just the first fruits. There is a mighty harvest to come. Death does not have to be the end. You can live. Do you want that? Do you want in on that? If you're not yet following Jesus, if you're not yet a Christian, that's a really important question. Do you want in on that? Because death is thorough. Death is a tsunami. Death is tragic. And we live so much of our lives in slavery to the fear of death. But God has better things planned. Life, not death. Do you want in on that? Do you want to be part of that? Well, will you turn to Jesus? Will you worship Him? Turn to Him in repentance and have your sins forgiven. My prayer, honestly, my prayer is that you might do that this week. In fact, you could do it tonight. Even tonight. Put your trust In the risen Jesus, he lives and he's Lord, and he holds out life for you. You don't need to put that off. If you want to make that change, you can do it anytime, and you can do it tonight. And if you're thinking, yep, I want in on that, then I want to encourage you at the end of tonight's session, which is almost upon us, there'll be some EU staff workers over, sort of behind the screens over there, there's a big area near the piano, there'll be a whole bunch of staff standing over there. You can just go up to them and just say, I want in on this. I want to follow Jesus. And they would love to pray with you and help you commit your life to Jesus. Start worshipping him and receive the forgiveness of your sins and the promise of life. You can do that tonight. Don't put it off. Well, I'm going to give you all a moment to stop, think, reflect. Then I'm going to read out a verse from that old hymn there on your page and then I'm going to lead us in prayer and we'll sing. One day the grave could conceal him no longer. One day the stone rolled away from the door. He had arisen. O death, he had conquered. Now is ascended, my Lord evermore. Living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried. He carried my sins far away. Rising, 
he justified freely forever. And one day he's coming. Oh, glorious day. We thank you, Father, that you have made Jesus Christ and Lord. Thank you for overturning sin and death in his death and resurrection for us. Thank you that hope has now risen. Strengthen us, Father, to worship him, to worship him as Lord. Work in us by your Spirit, so that all of us might turn to him, repent, receive forgiveness, so that we too might be part of your great resurrection harvest. We pray it with joy and thanks in our hearts. Amen. Amen.